I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour Podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, visit www.beherenownetwork.com slash Sharon. Enjoy listening. Of course, it's a tremendous honor to be sitting up here. Um, and I was reflecting, I was rereading the book last night some, and I was also reflecting on uh, low these many years that we've known each other and how I've so very often had the feeling that Ram Dass was just many steps ahead of me. Like I, for my own practice, like many people, um, I was really trying to come out of some significant suffering and I could have chanted all day long that I was practicing for the sake of all sentient beings, but not really. 
you know, and <laughs> and there was Ram Dass, you know, when we were back here, like working with homeless people, working with people in prison. I thought, wow, look at that. Um, and then working with people who were dying. And it, it's just been this uh, incredible process to uh, to see a path unfold through someone else's being on it and then realizing, oh, that is like the path, that this isn't ultimately a self-absorbed process, that it really is so much bigger than that. And uh, of course, saying we've known each other low these many years implies things like aging. And, um, <laughs> and dying, as Joseph says, we're in the queue. Uh, which... I don't really like to think about much, but here we are. So, um, and maybe uh, if I could start asking you, Ramdas, is there a, a point in which you felt your practice like opening to be so inclusive of others, or was Maharaji's teaching always so much about serving and feeding and taking care of people that it it just seemed. That was the way it was. I was in front of Maharaji, and um, I wanted to learn how to make my energy to the top of my head. And I asked him whether he would grant that. And he said, Feed people. Feed people. Feed people. What I want to do is learn how to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a yogi. Feed people. And then he threw me out. Is that your answer? There you go. <laughs> okay. Thank you. And Mirabai, uh, I was actually going to ask you uh, pretty much the same question since you and I began uh, practicing together. Unless you've done practice before, I'm not really sure. Never. We, uh, at the ever so famous retreat that began January 7th, 1971, which was my first meditation retreat and um, the men slept up on the roof under a tent. The women slept in the corridor around the meditation uh, hall. And Take there were no, that in for a minute. <laughs> there were no rooms, you know, there were no walls. So for some privacy, we would like hang saris between people and nearby slept just next to me, um, which was really fantastic. <laughs> Especially the day that Goenka, who was the teacher, decided to go around and ask everybody how their experience was while we were in our places, you know, our bedroom, so to speak. And all I'd been was sleepy, and I was so ashamed. And I thought, how am I going to tell him that? And, you know, oh, how awful, you know, and I could hear his footsteps coming closer. And he's saying, how, how, how has it been? How has it been? Then he got to Mirabai, and, and she said to him, I've been so sleepy. And I thought, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. Did you feel, um, 
was it when you left on that bus and came to Maharaji uh, that your perspective just opened, or was that always a part of you? It was always a part of me. Um, and when I was growing up, I loved Joan of Arc. So I saved the world <laughs> after saving France. And, <laughs> um, it, I think because I grew up... At, Identifying as an outsider with just my father left when I was little and it was a tie to know anybody else's didn't have both parents. And um, I felt I always felt like an outsider. And so I just was naturally drawn to people who were suffering. And both because I understood that I understood that suffering of being outside um, and also because I discovered pretty pretty soon that that suffering is how we learn and how we grow and people i identified as not suffering of course joseph would say, remind me that everybody suffers but that um seemed kind of boring and uninteresting so <laughs> that um led me to you know even before india i was involved in civil rights and anti-war work and so on yeah somehow i had that sense that you appeared as <laughs> having already incorporated that, that kind of perspective. Now, are you going to connect that to dying? I am. <laughs> <laughs> because um, I hope so. Anyway, <laughs> let's see. <laughs> um, you know, I think there's certain kinds of suffering that... Um, maybe we're drawn to trying to ease or address, but it can remain, likely remain other, you know, and yet here we are in the queue, you know, mm. so it's, it's um, perhaps the most challenging of all to, to be present with. And uh, I know each of you has, spent, you know, significant time in, in many ways being with people who are dying. And uh, then, of course, comes the moment when it's like, oh, it's uh, that we're in the queue, you know. Uh, but before then, you know, um, I don't know that I've ever talked to a hospice volunteer, for example, who did not say, I get much more than I give. Everybody seems to say that, so I'm very curious about that process to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. When I, when I um, am going to sit with a um, dying person, um, In the morning, I, I, I get thrilled because, because I'm going into, into uh, a space which is, which is truth. This is truth. And I used to say, when I 
sit within a dying person. I feel like a loving rock. Rock is that they push against. And I love it. The first part of the dying process. Doctor, doctor, save me, save me. And put those pictures on the wall. And the second is they have shed their personalities, shed their bodies, and they're on their way. I identify with my soul because I don't want to be impeding their travel, their transformation. And I get with, with them and then the second half, two souls, two souls. One thing Ramdas I'm struck by as you describe that is how that can be wordless. That can be, that's something you are doing. You're getting in touch with something. And one of the things we all tend to struggle with is what's the right thing to say. Um, some years ago, I was sitting with a friend who was dying, um, although it turned out to be some weeks before she actually died, um, which was a little bit of a surprise. And at one, and she was sort of going in and out of lucidity. And she said at one point, it's so confusing. It's so confusing. And I said, what's confusing? And she said, I have to pack up all of my things and take them across the street. And it was like 45 minutes later that it struck me. Like, oh, that's what across the street means. <laughs> and I said something like, hey, remember a while ago when you said this thing? You don't have to take your things with you. You can just leave them here. You don't have to worry. Um, but it was a good 45 minutes. And then I thought, oh, okay. Um, so the greatest power is, is our own experience and what we are likely able to bring into the room, whatever we say or don't say. And the most recent person who was dying that I sat with, which was, uh, she also did not actually die for many, many weeks, but she, she has. Um, she said to me, uh, and her family thought she was gonna die like any day, you know, and when I had gone to see her and she said to me when I'm, afraid to die, I just say, well, it's what's happening. Because she was that kind of meditator. And I said, in return, I know it's just a belief, but when I'm afraid to die, because I do believe in rebirth, I say to myself, you've done this so many times. <laughs> You'll be okay. 
And I, I said to her, and I said, I realized just in that conversation, I was afraid of doing it wrong. And that in that belief, I remind myself, it's okay, you know, you've got this down. You've done it a billion times, you know, like it's just another life. So I'm also intrigued by the role of belief and what we bring into the room in terms of our worldview and just listening to someone else's worldview. Well, one thing Ram does says in the book about being a loving rock for others who are dying is that they don't really need your worldview, mm -hmm. that what they really need is your silent, loving presence. And um, unless, of course, they ask, but that mm -hmm. that's the, the great hidden secret about being with the dying, that unless you have a, resp a medical responsibility or so on, that really it's an accompaniment. It's walking each other home, just being there in a loving way um, for, for whomever it is. And I, I would love to have you read something from the book if you have, have something ready. And because I was just thinking, well, of course, that's what we want ourselves. You know, if, if we were dying, if we're the ones dying, I'd rather not have somebody forcing me to think about the Tibetan Book of the Dead if I wasn't in the mood. You know, like, <laughs> I'd rather just be there. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'll say a couple of things about the book itself, why we did it. Um, it's really interesting to me when I started getting into it. I went back and read everything Ramdas had written and said about dying. And, you know, it was all there in Be Here Now, the, the, the basic truth of what it is that we are going to go through at the end of our lives. But... You know, it's a very different thing to know those words and to have lived a whole life uh, knowing those words and also going through a lot of suffering and then getting close to um, the end of that life. So we wanted to, in some way, um, give life to the depth and essence of what we know now. Um, and uh, the words are almost all the same. So like writing it over again didn't seem like the right thing to do. So we decided that um, we would do it in a conversation, that we would just go off and be alone a number of times and do what Ramdas advised me after that same meditation retreat. We'd been in silence for over a month, you know. And at the end, I'd been a literature PhD student. So words were like really important. And I said, Ramdas, what do we do now after that silence? And, and having looked at the superficial way in which I often used words, I said, what do we do? He said, say what you know, don't say what you don't know. At that moment, I thought I might never speak again. <laughs> But that's kind of, that was kind of our agreement with each other and for this book is that we would, you know, obviously, you know, there's great mystery in this subject. And um, we didn't want to make things up or say things just the way we'd said them before, but really speak out of this very moment. 
Um, do you want to say anything about that, Ramdas? Just about why we did it and how we did it before I read. The literature about dying and after dying is pretty thick. And this book, we had a conversation with two very close friends and she, she has the same guru as I do. And we worked with our hearts and it says conversations about loving and dying. How you live life is how you die. Joseph pointed out change, 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 and dying is the big change. It's important that it's seen at change. It's not the end. Mm -hmm. It's the change. I think, yeah, it's great. I'll read a little bit. So, so the book is in some ways informal, although it's about very serious subject. And um, so I'm sorry you weren't there, Sharon, because your line about I'm not in the mood for the Tibetan Book of the Dead <laughs> would have been a great line. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually a personal fear of mine, I should say. So all my friends who are in the room, in case I predecease you, um, that I'm going to be lying there unable to protest and people are going to be saying things very loudly, like go to the light. And I'm thinking, oh, come on. Come on. I don't really feel like it, you know. But what to do? Maybe it's all I'll want at the time, so I don't want to, you know, prejudice you. <laughs> so, <laughs> the first lines in the preface that Ramdas wrote <clears throat> yeah, this is for you. <laughs> Dying is the most important thing you do in your life. <laughs> It's the great frontier for every one of us. And loving is the art of living as a preparation for dying. Allowing ourselves to dissolve into the ocean of love is not just about leaving this body. It's also the route to oneness and unity with our own inner being, the soul, while we're still here. If you know how to live and to love, you know how to die. So now I'll read you it. The, all the chapters are only a couple of pages long. We wanted to give you time to breathe in and out in between. Um, so oh, here's one. It's called Death is a Moment. The next day, Ramdas asked Lucian to join us. 
Lucian is in his 20s and grew up in Colorado, his father an academic. Am I, can you hear in the back? Am I, yeah, okay. I'm glad he's with us. I'm aware that Ramdas and I have been thinking and talking mainly about death coming in middle or old age, although we know it happens also to young and even very young people. I remember a time in the 90s when I was working on a project with Bill Moyers, a program on dying called On Our Own Terms, which I always thought was a terrible title. This is the one thing you don't do on your own terms. <laughs> but it was about patient-centered decision-making. Um, it was focused primarily on empowering the dying to choose where and how they die. With Frank Ostaseski, I was teaching the production crew some meditation techniques to help them encounter their own fears of death. Since those fears were likely to arise as they filmed dying people in hospices. After a full day of meeting, <clears throat> Uh, I met my son, Owen, who was then a student at Tisch at NYU Film School in the East Village for dinner. I told him what we were working on, Ramdas and I, and he didn't seem very interested. Well, I said, what does dying mean to you? He was 21 or 20. AIDS, guns, and climate change, he said. An instant reframe. My implicit bias was revealed. It was a different world in your 20s in New York City when even thoughts about the universal experience of death were very different from mine. One, one time in a bookstore near NYU, I overheard a student make the quintessential statement on the subject. The thing about life is that one day you'll be dead. <laughs> so I was happy to have a younger Lucian in our conversation. He says, Death is hard to think about because we know we will die, but have no empirical data about what happens after death. <laughs> this is the tech generation. Um, we have people who have had near-death experiences, but nobody who's actually died. One teacher talked about death yoga. What's that, I asked. Sounds like having to stay in down dog for an hour. <laughs> it's about focusing on death, he said. But my, my, my friend says he prefers Tantra yoga instead. At, at least you have more than one shot. <laughs> there is that about death. No rehearsals, just one shot. So it's good to be ready. Ramdas says that maybe talking about death as we have been is ironically keeping him from being in the moment. The best preparation for death. Lucian asks, so... How do I keep death present while leading a full life, being here and now, doing all my tasks? Ramdas says, death is a moment, and how you spend your life in each moment is the rehearsal for your death. It's called be here now. It's your thoughts, just this moment, this moment, this moment. You delve into this moment. That's all there is. When you're living in time and letting the monkey of your mind run around past, into past and future, that's your mind. But here we are, and death will also be a moment. Death often comes without warning, but we can begin to understand it by realizing that the opposite of death isn't life. The opposite of death is birth. 
The beginning and the end are two sacred events, and in between is all impermanent. Life is arising and slipping away each moment, each breath. But within us is awareness. It's unconditioned and eternal. Anagarika Manindra once said to me, says Ramdas, every breath is the first and the last. Who was Anagarika Manindra, Lucian asks. I say, he was a Bengali Vipassana meditation teacher we met when we were first in Bodh Gaya. He was close to Goenka. Anagarika means one who leads a nomadic life without attachment in order to focus on the Dharma. Ramdas goes on. We can see death as a gift. We don't usually see it this way, but awareness of death changes our lives fundamentally. It helps us know how to live. And as Yogananda said, there's a great paradox in death. It's an experience through which we are meant to learn the lesson that we cannot die. What does that mean, we can't die, Lucian asks. The body you live in and the ego that identifies with it are just like the old family car, Ramdas answers. They're functional entities in which your soul travels through your incarnation. But when they're used up, they die. The most graceful thing to do is just to allow them to die peacefully and naturally. After death, the soul will live on. Eventually, in some incarnation, when you've finished your work, your soul will merge back into the one, back into God, back into the Atman, the infinite. In the meantime, your soul is using bodies, egos, and personalities to work through the karma of each incarnation. Lucian asks, if the soul lives forever, why are we afraid of death? The ego is built on the fear of not surviving, and if that's who you think you are, you're fearful. The ego asks, why not live for the moment? Live for the moment. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. But if instead you live in the moment, being here now, discovering the preciousness of life in each moment, then you are living not as an ego, but as a soul outside time. Lucian says, I sort of get it, but Ramdas tells the story of the wild strawberry. One day while walking through the wilderness, a man stumbled upon a vicious tiger. He ran but soon came to the edge of a high cliff. He looked over the cliff and there at the bottom was another tiger. Desperate to save himself, he saw a vine and climbed down the fatal precipice, looking for a place to hold on. As he hung there, two mice appeared from a hole in the cliff and began gnawing on the vine, doomed. Suddenly he noticed on the vine a plump, ripe, wild strawberry. He plucked it and popped it into his mouth. It was incredibly delicious. The man knew that he was about to die and that there was nothing he could do about it. The strawberry was his last chance to enjoy life. So instead of wasting his last moments in fear and frustration, he took what pleasure he could and made the best of it. Ramdas sips his tea for a while as we reflect on that story. It's the essence of being here now, 
both the story and the tea drinking. I should read this other short one because I think this is relevant for, I know, a lot of you who have lost, and us, who have lost friends. That's lot, well, that's the wrong phrase, losing. Friends who have died. And a year, just a year ago, tomorrow, a really close friend of Ramdas and me and some others died while we were doing this um, retreat. So this is called They Are Part of Me. Later that day, I climbed the stairs to Ramdas's room again. He looks quite happy. We reflect on our earlier conversation. Ramdas says, when people we love die, they become part of us. But as you just said, I say, people need to go through grief to get to another place. I said it, Ramdas said. But all my friends who've died are still here, still with me. I didn't lose anyone. Maharaji's here. And Stephen Levine, he populates my mind. Is it different from when Stephen was living in New Mexico, I ask? Well, we'd call each other on the phone then. I would bring his comments into myself. Now I bring all of him into myself. Love is reaching out to bring him and others in. Like when I work with Ramesh, uh, they're working on a um, memoir together, on my memoir, I've had it. I have a hard time with the idea that my brothers and father and mother are not living. They are around. It's love, just love. I love every one of these people. I've taken them into myself. They have become you, I say. Yep, yep. After my mother died, I tell Ramdas, I noticed that I spontaneously moved my hands like she did. And there were inflections in my voice that were hers. Wow. And I remember being at the burning gods in India and breathing in the smoke coming from a burning body, realizing that we physically become part of each other. It was only physical, but I understood something. Like you said, you took in Stephen's words, actually took them in. I was taking in the person who was being burned. Ramdas says, that's smoke, that's great, that's transition. I'm sure I did the same thing there. The smell of that smoke, the smell of the person. Smoke is one level and love is another level. Love is an incorporation. Incorporation, I say, means in your body, in the corpus. Hmm, God, this stuff is so tasty, Ramdas says. <laughs> Lakshman arrives. Are we going to have a little something to eat, he asks. You have to be at your doctor's place soon. Okay. Lakshman puts a plate of vegetables and rice and a tortilla on Ramdas's little side table. He eats for a while and then says, you know, at first I thought we were writing a book and I thought it would be work. But then we said conversations and I thought, I'm off the hook. This will be fun.
you have anything you'd like to uh, add? Okay. One of the things that struck me, it's so beautiful, and thank you both for creating this. And uh, one of the things that struck me is how limited my worldview was when I said I've done this before. I've died many times because if you just think about in a lifetime how much we have to let go of, <laughs> and we're just continually either struggling and holding on or relinquishing and letting go and letting go and letting go. And uh, that, of course, is when you say be here now is it. I love the notion of um, the first book uh, kind of saying it, but in a different way, because it's, it's like the element of the truth is also the truth. And it, it takes in it takes in all of it. So that was one of the things. And um, and then I also thought because I have the same response to the title of Bill Moyer's wonderful <laughs> series, which did so much. And one of the things I find incredibly mysterious about death is that it's out of our control. Clearly, because if somebody gave us a choice, many of us would say no, thank you. You know. And yet, over and over again, you hear these stories. Well, they didn't die till their son got there from around the world or uh, till their daughter graduated from college or till their child left the room, um, which many times the child, an adult, uh, is very upset about. You know, that I was there and I was there and I was there and it was only when I left that they died and uh, somebody was once asked that and, and said, um, as I was sitting there, well, maybe that's what they were waiting for, you know, because it was too hard with you there. You'd be too upset or something like that. Like, what a strange thing. What is that in us that knows or paces or has a rhythm all of itself? <laughs> I don't know. It's like so strange. Death is a ceremony, a spiritual ceremony. I was with my mother in the hospital room. She and I were talking about death, and all her friends came up to visit. And all the doctors and nurses come up. And either, each of them, they come out of the room. Boy, she's dying. And then when, she, when they came into the room, Gertrude, you were looking wonderful. And I thought, here is a, uh, an important ceremony in which there was a lies, lies, lies. And I said to her, Mother, you're dying. She said, I think you're right. You're right. She and I had that conversation a far out conversation from, from me and her. She was taking things for her pain. And I had just come back from 
a music music festival, and so I was stoned. And she and I really together with we're talking about it. Actually, I wanted to ask you about physical pain because some of our here nows are a lot easier to bear than other here nows and how that affects people's consciousness in that process. You mean drugs? Well, I mean, just first, just the experience of the pain. Yeah. And, and then I suppose it, it is a choice whether to... Um, do pain uh, alleviating medication or not? Spiritually, use as little, little pain medicine. And then as your consciousness approach that moment of transition as consciously as you can, as aware, as mindful, as mindful. So bad. There is a very very extensive literature of people who uh, had an operation or took a drug or they went into spiritual scenes. And I have found that there are communalities about these books. They all say they, they meet, meet another soul, meet new souls who, who love them, who love them. Their relatives, their friends, they are, you are, you are, soul pod. These are souls that travel with you through incarnations. So when you receive something in this incarnation, somebody, he looks familiar. Because he's in your soul bond. My mother was in my soul bond. Not was, is. Now, in this incarnation, she is a Jewish middle class powerful person. And then Maharaji said to me, your, your mother is a very high soul. 
I said, eh. <laughs> In the Ramayana, the holy book, Ram is having a fight with Ravana, who's a, he's the devil. And the footnote says, Ravana, in his per, pre, previous birth, a very holy, holy man, you are all playing a part. You've been from up there in soul land. You realize that your ego is playing a part. Just the last thing I'll say before we take some questions or comments from you is, uh, as you say that, I, I thought of um, this passage from the Buddha where he said, life is like an echo, it's like a dream. It's like a rainbow, it's like a flash of lightning in a summer sky. We're all just kind of playing a part in this uh, translucent and yet present dream. And here we are. I have a question. So I have always felt that the most optimum way to die would be the most optimum way to die would be to be conscious, um, dying conscious, old preferably. And uh, I love the book. Thank you very much. Great blessing. So what happens if you die in an accident? You're going to have a chance to be conscious and present in, uh, in that moment, which is like an optimum moment to awaken as much as possible. I know part of it is to live your life as if you're going to die in the next breath, but really, I have questions about that. Thank you. Well, in the book, Ram Dass talks, of, he's reflecting on the number of friends who've died in motorcycle accidents, sudden. And I mean, the basic teaching is death comes without warning, start now and <laughs> to get ready, um, because we never know. And when I asked him if he ever thought he was gonna die suddenly, and you said, yes, once when I was flying my plane, and I said, well, did you, were you ready? Did you, because I think we had just talked about Gandhi being ready and saying Ram and going. I said, were you ready like Gandhi? He said, no, I was feeling guilty about getting everybody else involved in the plane crash. <laughs> but, the, but, but the main, I think the main teaching is start now. Now. <laughs> Just now, the death of the last moment, and now 
there's a new moment. You just, you just experience death. Just now. Uh, hi, my name is Margaret. I want to thank you for the book. Um, I just listened to it. Uh, yeah, which um, I have a diagnosis. Um, I have a rare incurable cancer, which I'm told I'm at stage four of. And uh, so I've um, I've been uh, I've been told by a lot of people not a lot, by some people, um, not, to, not to buy into the statistics, not to buy into the diagnosis. And um, I actually find that, I'm finding that it's better for me to say, look, I have this thing, that, this title that goes with me now. And um, I want to back up just a little bit because I'm so, I just want to say thank you again for having this conversation because <laughs> I wanted to come to the death and dying workshop that you did, but I was having a metastasis move from my, removed from my left lung. And That's a good excuse. That was a good, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was a good excuse. And um, yeah, so I wasn't sure that, you know, I've been working throughout the days here to map on the generosity. Um, uh, also, sorry, since the diagnosis, I've worked with, uh, you know, what are the lessons here? And in my meditations, uh, thanking the cancer for the lessons, thanking the cancer for, the, for, you know, the life that it's given me now. And yet there's still like so much fear. I want to thank Joseph for all the conversations about fear. Um, there is this body that's really helped me because um, it kind of depersonalizes it for me that there is this body and there's either cancer or there, not can there isn't cancer. Um, at the moment, I'm here because I had a clear scan. I get another scan in two months. And then we'll see. So I, I, I live scan to scan. And like I'm saying, there's a blessing in how now I live. Uh, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> and um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> this is my son. <laughs> He's saying, get, get to the question. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I'm not sure what the question is. I just want you to, uh, I would like you to say what you can uh, about, um, you know, the, where, I, the, where I'm at with this kind of life, uh, where I don't know. I don't want to buy into the statistics, but I don't want to ignore them. I, found, I, I find that the diagnos diagnosis is empowering in a way. And, uh, Anyway, so yeah, I'm not really sure what the question is. I just would like you to, to speak to uh, living this way. I could talk forever about it, but <laughs> I'd like to hear what you have to say. <laughs> Thank you. You're sad because you're, 
your mind is in the past or in the future. Because all you have is this body and it's and it's and the cancer. This moment and then this moment. And then this moment. You are a soul. Souls don't die. You're a loving soul to your son, the love between you as a soul and the, the people you love are souls. That's not affected by your condition. You're a place in which the cancer is borrowing in. Or cancer. Or cancer. Now, even that smile in your face, the smile in my face, is a method. It's a method. Just smile. Cancer, hello, cancer. But the the long faces in the, in this culture, cancer. Cancer. What could happen from that cancer is death. And I promise you that you will surprise, surprised at death, that you will experience love 
and feel, feel love towards your loved ones. And, and you will experience their love. It's a, it's a spiritual matter. It's just a soul going through transition. Okay. But, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you so really, much. Thank you. Thank you. You definitely brought it into the room. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com.